Perfect. Uh, because we're RUF, it takes us more than two weeks to get a wireless mic working, so we're always we're pulling out of the 90s into the 2000s. So, um, if you, uh, my name is Brian Sorgan Fry, I'm the camp minister here. Uh, let me first say, uh, there's two people in the back that are blending in, one man with gray hair, and they're my parents, uh, and it's awesome they're here. So, older I get, the prouder I am that they're their parents, so you need to welcome them tonight uh, and uh, make them feel at home. So, oh yeah. See, you just made him feel loved. Um, all right, so we are walking through Leviticus, and uh, we are looking every week at the theme that Leviticus shows us that God draws near, because Leviticus is setting up for this period in history where God is going to show up in a visible, tangible way in the in the tabernacle, so that He is with His people in a special way. But when He does that. Leviticus says that there's going to be all kinds of barriers that come up if God is going to be near us, namely our sin. But Leviticus says yes, but God wants to be so near, so intimate, He will overcome every barrier that we have put up so that He can be with us. And so tonight, as God keeps drawing near, here's, here's, I think this is fascinating. That as God draws close, He says that means in my people's life there's going to be rest and celebration. That as people get to know me, your life will be characterized by rest and celebration because he's near. I don't know how that strikes you. I think uh, for many of us that that might seem odd. And maybe one of the reasons is uh, we live on a party campus, right? Uh, You know, we may lose a game. We may never lose a party. There's actually t-shirts that say that. Uh, So what does it mean that the God of the Bible commands... Rest in celebration. Uh, I think this analogy works. Think of the difference between a um, between a good wedding marriage celebration and your typical uh, college Friday night party. All right, I'm not trying to stereotype. Just giving it my best shot. A good wedding marriage celebration is what? It is celebrating something specific. And the joy of that is engaging you uh, to that reality so that you remember it. A typical Friday night college party, usually what's going on is trying to make you forget something. And you're not really sure what you're celebrating. And God here, when He commands rest and celebration, here's what I would suggest. He is saying, I want you to celebrate and and rest in such a way that you remember. And that you remember what God has done for you. How much He loves you. And how He's never going to leave you. Rather than a party that is trying to forget things and is very vague uh, in, in the whole point of it. That's what he's after in Leviticus 23. He's saying it's through resting and celebrating that I want you to trust that I'm good. So let me, let me pray. Lord, uh, as I seem to say every week in Leviticus, uh, we can get lost in this fast. Uh, and so we are asking for your help. Uh, you promised that if we ask you for wisdom and if we ask you for the spirit that you will give us those things. So would you give us both uh, so that we can understand your word? 
so that we can follow you, uh, so that we can find rest. Uh, in Jesus' name, amen. All right, I'm just going to read verses 1 through 8. You don't have to panic. And then verse 44, all right? And then we'll do a flyover of the rest. The Lord spoke to Moses saying, Speak to the people of Israel and say to them, These are the appointed feasts of the Lord that you shall proclaim as holy convocations. They are my appointed feasts. Six days shall work be done, but on the seventh is a Sabbath of solemn rest, a holy convocation. You shall do no work. It is a Sabbath to the Lord in all your dwelling places. These are the appointed feasts of the Lord, the holy convocations, which you shall proclaim at the time appointed for them. In the first month, on the fourteenth day of the month, the twilight, is the Lord's Passover. And on the fifteenth day of the same month is the feast of unleavened bread to the Lord. For seven days you shall eat unleavened bread. On the first day you shall have a holy convocation. You shall not do any ordinary work. You shall present a food offering to the Lord for seven days. On the seventh day is a holy convocation. You shall not do any, any ordinary work. Then Leviticus walks through five more commanded feasts, okay? And then verse 44. Thus Moses declared to the people of Israel the appointed feast of the Lord. The grass withers, the flowers fade. Word of our God, it stands forever. Okay, three things. If, if throughout Leviticus, what, what I've been trying to convince you is that God is building a case that when he draws near to us, it affects everything. Everything. And we've talked about how that affects the way that we think and uh, uh, engage in sex and relationships uh, with, with the poor and how you worship God. And what God is saying is, is that tonight, that when he comes near... It transforms the way that you think and understand your schedule and how you rest because he's good and you can trust him. So three things. The connections of the celebration and rest to Jesus. Second of all, the principle behind those celebrations and rest. And third, the application to us. So how's it connected to Jesus? What's the principle behind it and applications? Big thanks to Brent Corbin. He's my friend. So much of this is from him. First, all right, how do we connect this to Jesus. If you read through all these feasts, if you're to do it tonight, it can get tedious, let's say. And the only way to make sense of of kind of the madness, if you will, is to see, like we've been trying to see in every part of Leviticus, that it is about Jesus. That all these feasts and all these commands to rest are ultimately pointing forward to God who's to come so near that he's going to take on flesh and walk this earth in Jesus. And I'm not going to walk through them all. For the sake of time, I'm just going to list three as our flyover. Okay, first. The first one we read is Passover. Okay? Remember, Israel, if you know anything about its past, was enslaved to Egypt, to an evil emperor uh, uh, or Pharaoh. And in Exodus 12, how God delivers his people is through a miraculous thing called Passover where an angel of death shows up and kills the firstborn in every house that does not have the blood of the lamb pasted over the doorway. Which means every Egyptian household, there was a death that night. And every Jewish person who had pasted the blood over the the doorway, God's judgment passes over them. And through that, they are delivered. Not because they were better people, not because there was something inside of them that somehow was better than the Egyptians, 
But because of the blood of the Lamb, the judgment passes over them. And then, of course, he commands them to rest, like you're going to see he does every time. And thus, thousands of years later, Jesus shows up, and on the night before Passover, guess what he does? He has a meal with his disciples, and he is telling them that he is the Lamb. He is the one that is going to enable God's judgment to pass over us. And John the Baptist says, Behold, the Lamb of God that takes away the sins of the world. Because Jesus is slain, and as his blood is spilt, all those who are covered by his blood, God's judgment passes over you. And thus in 1 Corinthians 5, Paul says this, For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Second of all, This is verse 9 through 14. The Jews were to celebrate the beginning of the harvest year with something called the Feast of the First Fruits. Okay? And so what would happen is as soon as they gathered the beginnings of the harvest, the first fruits were coming in, they would bundle it up, and as strange as this sounds, they would all gather together, and they would wave it in the air to each other and towards the tabernacle, towards the temple where God is. That seems odd. But remember, Leviticus is always giving you these tangible things to remind you of an unseen truth. And what they were doing in a very ceremonial way was acknowledging that everything that they had was from God. He claims it all. It's graciously given to us. And so we are waving it to him to acknowledge that it came from him. And ultimately, he owns it. And the first fruits were the acknowledgement that God is going to come through with everything else that he promised. The rest of the harvest. And thus, Paul again in 1 Corinthians 15 picks up on this language from this feast and says, Christ has been raised from the dead, you ready? Which is the first fruits of all those who have fallen asleep, all those who have, who have died. What does that mean? It means that God who's in the business for thousands of years providing everything that his people needed, says, I've even provided victory over death itself and sin. And Christ's resurrection is the first fruits of that. So that what happened to Jesus, he's going to come through and it's going to happen to you. That God promises all those who are connected to Jesus will also be resurrected to never die. Because he's the first fruits. And then lastly... This is verse 15 through 21. Uh, Fifty days after Passover, there's this feast of weeks is what it was called. But because it was 50 days after Passover, it also became known as, you ready, Pentecost. Fifty. And what would happen here, this is when the harvest had finally come in. This was the mega celebration. This was the grove party, okay? This is when all the, all the harvest had come in. And probably some of you from the Delta knows how much work this takes and what it's like to finally have the harvest there. It's there. And so for a full week, they would rest from work. They would offer sacrifices to God. And they would eat and celebrate. And God even says, and you've got to take care of the poor. You've got to acknowledge that everything that you have in abundance right now has got to be shared. So he was saying, I'm going to make you celebrate what I've given you. Because I'm a God who provides abundantly. Okay. Well, fast forward a couple thousand years ago, uh, a couple thousand years ahead. And if you're from a church background, Pentecost maybe tingled something in your ears. 
Maybe not. Because what's going to happen is 50 days after Jesus' resurrection, here's what's going to happen. The disciples are at the temple during Pentecost, and something happens. The Holy Spirit shows up, the third person of the Trinity. And guess what he does? He reaps a harvest as 3,000 people are converted as Peter preaches the gospel. And a harvest of souls comes in. And it's the promise that, that he is going to fulfill his harvest. And there will be a multitude that no man can number from every tribe, tongue, and nation that will be his. And so God sets forth these feasts, seven of them. We went through three for the sake of time. That after you walk through the New Testament, you realize all of them were pointing to and fulfilled by the person and work of Jesus. And so these feasts and these commands to rest were teaching them about the character of God so that they would hope for Jesus. And now as we look back, we see this is what they were about. So what's the principle behind this, though? This is what I think is really interesting. Because in chapter 23, again, if you're taking Leviticus big picture... This is in the middle of where God has been asking his people, actually, you know, say, demanding his people to be holy. He says, you have to be holy because I'm holy. And we've talked about that holiness means all of life. It means thinking about loving your neighbor. It means thinking about uh, the way that you work and all this kind of stuff. But in the middle of that, God says that the way that you're going to be holy is that you celebrate and rest. But what God just said in Leviticus is the most holy people have learned to celebrate. And the most holy people have learned to rest. We think holiness means get busy. Crank it out. Pack your schedule more efficiently. One one person I studied in preparation for this said, look, there are three false ideas of how we strive for holiness. First, I realize a list can be hard to pay attention to. It's the mechanical approach that we do. In other words, the way that I'm going to change is a to-do list. Do these three things. Figure out these three steps every day. If you practice those principles, you'll become what you ought to be. Second of all, there's the moralistic approach. The way that you'll become who you're supposed to be is, is figure out the rules that you need to follow. Figure out the commands you need to follow and do it. And you, and you will become holy. And the last approach is the mystical approach, where you just, we assume that, that change will come as we kind of work up into ourselves this, this state of, of kind of contentment, uh, this reception, uh, a stress-free hindrance before God, and that that will change you. But did you notice that all three of those approaches of becoming holy, of changing, they measure your holiness. Are you ready? according to you and what you're doing and how well you're performing. But in this celebration calendar that God gives in Leviticus, the way he's reordering their life, he cuts across all those perspectives and says, no, my people will not, they actually cannot be holy on the basis of their work. My people are going to be holy because I make them holy, because of what I do for them and because of how I sustain them. And therefore, in recognition of that fact, a fact that people must continually forget all the time or he wouldn't have commanded this, 
He says, I am going to command that my people stop working on a regular basis, offer sacrifices, and feast so that they are in a tangible way forced to understand that it is my work that makes them holy. I'm the one who sustains them. And so the one feature that is constant through every feast day is the command to stop working. Because God is saying there is something about when you rest that you display to the world and to yourself that I am the one who is working this out, not you. I'm the one that ultimately is going to uphold you, not how well you work for me. You know, I, my wife was actually telling me about this the other day, probably because I don't rest very well. Okay, this is one of the most hypocritical sermons I've ever preached, right? I'm just gonna, there's a lot of them I have, but this is one of them. She was giving me this example to help me uh, rest. Uh, and I've looked it up. They're actually, this is kind of becoming a thing that celebrities in our culture are checking into hospitals. And the reason is exhaustion. Uh, I think Kanye did this not too long ago. There's others that literally the only way that they can begin to shut down is to check into a hospital. I don't say that actually in a belittling way. That's where we are. And what, what Leviticus is saying and that Jesus will go on to say is that no one rests actually until the restlessness of your heart begins to be addressed. This is what Jesus means. This is what Catherine read in in Matthew 11. says, Come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I'll give you rest. This is annoying. It keeps coming down. When Jesus says, I'll give you rest, he is not talking about a nap. He's not even talking about these festivals, ultimately, that uh, that the Jews celebrated. He's talking about a deep REM of the soul. I I don't know how else to put it. A deep rest that Jesus brings into your heart that changes you from the inside out. And so in this passage, God is commanding people in a very tangible way to push back the never-ending restlessness that goes on inside of us. That tempts us all to say, I've always got to be on the go. I can never stop. Everything has to keep happening or my life is going to fall apart. And this is where we are. Like, and again, I am so pro-technology, right? I have iPhones. I, and I, the, other, the kind of the older generation is like, ah, the problem is these iPhones. Actually, I don't think that's the case. But recognize this. We are at a place where constant input is coming from everywhere. Whether that is your phone, whether that is email, whether that is whatever, Instagram, whatever. And here's what I've begun to wonder. Is the constant input that's coming into my life and your life causing the restlessness? Or is it because that we're so restless we have to have constant input because we don't know what else to do? And we don't know how to be alone. We don't know how to rest. And God is saying here, I don't want you, my people are not going to be driven by restlessness. Because I'm a God who's good and provides. So here's my question. What if rest was the most tangible way for you to experience and to show that what makes you okay 
is Jesus' work for you and not your work for Him or your work to keep your life together? What if rest was a gift that God gave you to declare freedom from everything else that dares to define you and convince you that this is what holds your life together besides Jesus? Wouldn't that be good news? Wouldn't that be a a relationship that would be healing? And I'll add this in, that you will never find rest until you realize that your busyness cannot stop the problems of your heart. It can't. A better grade won't do it. A cuter boyfriend won't do it. A better internship, a clearer future, it's not going to do it. Because there's a restlessness of your heart that has got to be addressed. And these celebrations and these, re, uh, re, and, and these commands to rest are pointing to Jesus. How does that happen? Right? The application is, what do I do with this? Because look, just like everything else in Leviticus, right? If you, if you come every week to RUF, I realize maybe this gets old. We always end with Jesus. It's all I know where to go. He's the point. But we've seen this, right? There is a sac- there's a sacred people, priests, <laughs> It ultimately pointed to Jesus, the high priest. There's this sacred place called the tabernacle and the temple where, where worship of God will happen. And we saw that Jesus is the temple. The presence of God being manifest where we worship. And now he comes into us and we become temples. And, of course, now what we're seeing is there are sacred times that God has set out. And Jesus has fulfilled those. Which means, no, we don't celebrate the Feast of Weeks anymore. But what it means is this. All of time is now sacred for Christians. All of time is Jesus' time. He's infused every single moment of your life with meaning. Your daily work matters. Your daily rest matters. Because you're not a machine. Everything is done now, or supposed to, we fail at this, in trust of and in the presence of Jesus. Because he's real. So the age-old illustration that I'm sure I've used, but there just isn't a better after 40 years of movies, is this movie called Chariot to Fire. Academy Award winner. You should see it if you never have. And it's about Eric Liddell and Harold Abrams, two English Olympian runners, both from the same background, both train with the same person, both have the same goal of winning the Olympics, and both run the same race. And in Chariots of Fire, there's this scene that's almost shown back to the back that shows that inside there's something different. Eric Liddell is having this conversation with uh, his sister Jenny, who's very concerned about all this silly running that he's doing, right? It's unchristian. She's wrong. Uh, because Eric is also a missionary. And she, she's begging Eric to quit running and to come back and share the gospel with people in China. And Eric looks at her and says this, Jenny, God didn't make me for China. But God also made me fast. And when I run, I feel his pleasure. And sometime after that, his, his, his you know, arch rival, Harold Abrams, also runs the same thing, same background. He has a conversation with a friend. And here's what he says. After asking why he worked so hard, he says this. Because when that gun goes off, I have 10 seconds to justify my existence. And what you realize is Eric Liddell even when he's working hard, is actually at rest. 
And Harold Abrams, when he's resting, is still working hard. Why? Because something has come into the deep soul of Eric and has brought him deep rest. And what Leviticus 23 is holding out for you in shadow form, yes, is there is a celebration and rest of the soul that goes deep. And yes, the fourth commandment still says, work six days, honor the Sabbath, rest on the seventh. So which means God has put in place a weekly thing in your life so that you can tangibly and experientially believe and trust that Jesus' work will sustain you. Hebrews 4 says this, So then there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. Whoever has entered God's rest has also rested from his works as God did from his. So the principle is this. We are to create space in our lives from our normal week so that our minds and our hearts are remembering the gospel and who Jesus is. And we literally on the Sabbath, which is now Sundays, go to worship and feast on the gospel and feast on the Lord's Supper to remember He's the one who provides. He's the one who saves me. Not how well I've done this week in school. Not whether I got into med school. Not whether she finally went out for me, with me, or, but He did it. It's about Him. So a friend of mine recently reminded me, and I'll close with this, of an illustration where uh, he likened the feast to flowers that you give a girl that you love, guys. And you know what happens, right? Think about it. You, you, you've planned this out. Maybe you've been dating her. Maybe this is, huh, this probably isn't the way that you decided to first tell her that you like her. But you've been dating her for a while, and so you, you present her with flowers. Now, what's the point of those flowers? They're beautiful. They're exquisite. They're visible, they're tangible, they're real. But the flowers weren't intended to be the object of her affection, right? You don't imagine her walking away with the flowers, immersed in and loving the flowers, right? And forever staring at them, right? The flowers, though they were great, are a means for her to receive your love and your care and to recognize that so that she is more immersed in the way that you feel about her. The flowers aren't the point. They were a means to a greater end of experiencing your affection. Correct? I'm not, this is how it works, guys. Okay? Just explaining this. Um, the flowers aren't the point. But you should give flowers. But it's so that they'll experience your affection. This is what I mean. When Christians talk about rest or the Sabbath, to use older language, everybody gets worked up. And what you can or cannot do. But think about the flowers. The point of Sunday is to find Jesus and to enjoy Him. He's the beloved. Resting in Him. Not exactly how you work out your schedule is the point. He commands rest so that you can delight and rest in Him. How different is that? Then what is going on on Fridays? Where you are trying to feast so that you can forget about reality. But Jesus is saying on Sundays, come into reality and see who I am and what I've done for you. Why? Because when Jesus died, he said, it is finished. 
What is finished? All the work that's required to make you right with him. And he's saying the most tangible way you can sit in that is to come find Jesus on Sundays and rest in him. And that, I mean, the only feeling I know that Sunday is supposed to feel is like what happens when you turn in your last exam. You know how that feels where you're like, ah, okay, nothing to worry about. And that's, that's awesome. But what Jesus is saying is come in every week and push away and go, ah, it's okay. Jesus has taken my condemnation and I'm in his righteousness. And second of all, keep going with the flowers analogy. If you don't ever give the person you love flowers or fill in the blank, whatever she really loves, you might not actually love her. And so if you keep ignoring the day of rest to be with Jesus, don't beat yourself up. Just realize your heart probably loves other things more than Jesus. Okay. What would it be like to declare freedom from those things and enjoy Jesus? And thirdly, it means this. This very moment. Hopefully this doesn't sound too cheesy. Jesus is actually holding out flowers to you. He is saying, you can get off the treadmill of misery and busyness and rest and celebrate who he is and what he's done for you. And will, will our anxiety be like, yeah, but I've got to do this, got to do this? But you can trust him. He's that good. I don't know. Will you come to the party that Jesus offers that's full of love and rest? It's actually the key to holiness. Celebrate rest. What a God. That's an invitation. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for Leviticus 23. And, I, you know, I can't speak for everybody in here. I know for me, it exposed the restlessness in my heart. Um, because I, I, I cannot declare freedom from other people's approval, uh, from uh, getting uh, X, Y, and Z done so that I can be okay. But Lord, if you're the God of grace and rest, we can even tell you that and ask you to help us. Help us to know how to feast on you and give us the deep rest of, of our soul that comes from the finished work of Christ. In Jesus' name, amen.